stocks, bonds, ETFs, straight out of downtown Chicago. This is Zach's Market Edge. Welcome to Zach's Market Edge, the podcast about investing in your life. I'm your host, Tracy Reinick, and this week I'm joined by Zach's chief equity strategist and an economist, John Blank, to fill us in, as he always does, about what's going on in the economy out there. And, you know, are we are we going into a recession? Now, we've had this conversation many, many times over the years, it seems like. And the last time I had to go back and look, John, about the last time that I had you on it, it was March 29th, 2023. So it has been a while. And that's kind of because we aren't in a recession yet. <laughs> so I was like, well, why have John back come back on to say the same old stuff we've been talking about? But now that the Fed themselves is apparently saying they don't foresee a recession, I thought this is a good time to have you come back on so we can talk again about what to look for, what where we are, and you know why everybody is getting it so wrong. So welcome back. Thanks, Rosie. So I was looking at some of the employment data before we went on here for the podcast, because I know you always tell us to look at the employment data. And I looked at the June number. It was at 3.6. It did jump up to 3.7 in May, came back down 3.6. The weekly initial claims, I like to look at the claims that come out every week. Those last week were at 221,000. Uh, that was down. I looked at the four-week moving average. That's down. It's at 233,750. And I remember you always say we have to have over 300,000 on the weekly claims to even be thinking about, you know, recession is imminent. Um, the continuing claims looked good. That's down. The four-week moving average there is down about 10,000 from the prior week to 1,719. Uh, so, so what, what, what's happening? Why, why is this so good? Yeah, I'll throw out the, uh, non-farm payrolls that are core to the whole story here. So my, my addition to this, it will be down at the bottom of this, uh, employment situation summary by the BLS. We'll say the change in non-farm payroll April was revised down by 77,217,000. Change in May was revived down 33,000 from 339 to 306. So we've got a recent one that will be, will be revised at 209. And we have two in the past now that will be 217 and 306. So I, I'm just going to push that back to you and say, are we in a recession on those numbers? No. No. The answer <laughs> is no. Yeah. I mean, why Tracy and I do this? Um, it's fascinating to just speak to the facts that come from the government and understand uh, signal versus noise. We want the revised facts. We want to actually be somewhat tardy in calling recessions. One of the big problems we've had this time around is the leading indicators, the leading indicators, which are typically a function of the conference boards, and they use the yield curve inversion as a major leading indicator, have been negative for 15 months. So this has gotten all of the prescient, you know, black swan, you know, great calls turned people out there. There's a there's a huge industry of people who want to be predicting things as opposed to just doing the more humble thing, which is what we're doing, updating people on the coincident indicators, which are the labor market indicators, which are very strong and very stable. So 
not only are they strong, Tracy, but they are very stable. The, the 3.2 to 3.7 range on the household unemployment rate has been in place since March of last year. So now we're in 16 months of stable sideways employment at a high level. So no momentum one way or the other other than very strong and stable unemployment. We, we all know the the story about job openings and job quits being you know quite strong and there's a lot of demand for labor and it's it's not really dissipating so the basic point here is you know after a covid pandemic you have a set of structural uh, issues in the economy that are favorable to stable growth and this has been lost because a covid an exit from a covid pandemic has been uh matriculated into a recession cult. There is no cycle here other than getting out of a COVID pandemic. There is no historical analogy that's been that, that should be drawn to all the other cycles we've seen over the last, you know, six or eight times up and down the cycle. So this has really confused a lot of people. You have a once in century event, it's a COVID pandemic. You shut down, you know, through policy means the economy. The, the, the quote cycle language is worthless. Okay, so those people who go back and look at, you know, 2008 and look at the unemployment, like what it was doing then, and then suddenly there was like this big spike up and that could happen this time. Those people are, they're completely wrong. They're just out of there. Yeah, that's it. I mean, what happened this time, if you're worried about housing, well, we had, again, we had mortgage-backed security buying and treasury bond buying on a monthly basis throughout the pandemic which kept you know, the average fixed mortgage rate in the United States now, 30-year fixed mortgage rate, for most people is less than 3%. So they locked in low mortgage rates on houses. And then, of course, we know the story that we're now at a Fed funds rate of five and a quarter percent, which should translate into a seven to seven and a half percent 30-year fixed rate mortgage. So you say, wow, that should slow down the housing industry. Well, no, if you have a 3% mortgage, and you're going to swap into a 7.5% mortgage. You're going to think really hard about that. Probably not do that and probably stay with your house. So now we got a lot of termite inspections, remodeling, and people sitting on their houses. So there's a low inventory housing situation because everybody doesn't want to swap out that, that low, low, low mortgage. They aren't going to see it again. So what's happening is that's holding prices up, and we're not having a collapse in prices. In fact, we're having the opposite because people aren't selling their houses. So the real issue here is when does that string play out? And I have to capitulate and sell my house. Well, I have to capitulate when I have to move um, for a job or I lose my job. So um, these are the two things. We've now created a kind of immobility in the economy, right? Because people don't want to move out of their houses. But at the same time, we now have remote working. So if Tracy Reinick wants to get a job with a different group in New York, she can stay remote and work in Chicago and not sell her house. So the other thing that's interesting here in a, a post-COVID environment, the worry about mobility is, is dropping because you can work remotely. So again, a lot of these things, you start working through the, the logic like I just did in a post-COVID environment, not a broad, generalized, cyclical environment. You get answers that are fairly sanguine and say, no, it's not going not gonna to roll over. It's not going to happen. Not, not for a while. I mean, in general, I mean, again, as an average, the other thing that's been really wrong here about these, these rate hikes is, yes, they were rapid, very rapid, because the Fed got behind the curve basically a year, but they got up. So when a rate cycle starts, it's on average. And an average is an average, people. It's not 
going to happen. It's what you've got to use as a thought experiment. It's 25 months till any, anything. So we start 17 months ago. Um, an average effect is not going to hit us till next summer, right? So the, the earliest we can actually get a, a you know, sanguine idea of a slowdown from the rate structure itself is next summer. And that is not factoring in that next summer will be right in front of an election. It'll be right in, in, in turning with probably a much lower course PCE by a point from now. If it just even goes down a tenth of a point or two tenths of a point month on month, it's going to be down. So inflation will be lower. There will be an election. And the government has already locked in infrastructure spending on a rider in that bill till the end of next year because they don't want to have spending drop in front of the election. So to have that average work out for you in front of this election with those circumstances on fiscal policy, with this circumstance amount of better CPI or core PC, which will lower the, the potential Fed funds rate, uh, those are they're, they're, that's not a, that's not going to cause a recession next year. So I think, you know, if you start doing the thinking like I'm doing here, you say, when? When is 2025? That's when. Okay. That so, was going to be my that, next that's question. That's the answer <laughs> I, I get just sitting here talking to you. Is I, and I've written this in commentary within the company on my own portfolio management. It's like, look, after the election, if it goes Biden's way, after we get some slowdown that gets dis irregular and people start really unloading houses in a massive way, there could be a slowdown in 2025. I don't think people should just throw this idea of a recession out. Okay. But, you know, I, I, on the investment committee at Zach's investment management, I made this point, and, and Mitch agrees with me on this one, is the other thing we can have is a look through a recession that's super moderate and basically the market doesn't care. The other thing is all the bears can be right and your stocks don't care. Yeah, <laughs> right. Because a lot of the se separate segments of the economy have already been in a recession. We were just right. talking about housing. That was in a recession last year, for sure. And even the beginning part of this year, but now the National Association of Realtors, their economist has declared the housing recession is over. He's just declared that. We have manufacturing in recession, but it's such a small percentage of the overall economy. And even manufacturing is maybe going to start to turn around here with all the spending on the clean energy that's in the bills you mentioned, the CHIPS Act, that's all going to be in manufacturing coming into next year. So that's going to be a stimulus. So what is, it would have to be tech or something that you know, is the stimulus to slow, but we we had that last year too, and into the beginning of this year, where we had a lot of layoffs. Some companies that were a little too speculative did shut down. I had some friends who were at several of those places. Uh, they've already gotten new jobs in other tech companies. So, what's gonna? What do you think could be the catalyst? Let's be bearish and say that there could. Yeah, you know, all it has to be is is the housing market, right? You have extreme unaffordability, which is restricting the amount of ex spending away from housing. Um, you know, the buy downs and people being able to delay this thing out plays out, you know, they, they start to build. And then you get in a market in your neighborhood where everybody unloaded their house and inventories are very high, right? You get a huge inventory in, a, in an area of the country, you know, let's say Phoenix, you know, climate change, suddenly there's a huge inventory of houses there. And you're stuck. You want to unload it too, but you waited too long. And everybody's out there cutting price. 
And then all of a sudden that drops all the realtors out of Phoenix, that drops the construction out of Phoenix, and then it starts to multiply and spread because you're, you, that is when you get a situation where you're not, you thought your own individual decision is the only thing that mattered and it turned out, no, you're in this basin with all these inventory numbers and that inventory numbers critically changed and you didn't catch the turn. So we're not, I mean, all the issues that people have tabled about the economy are relevant. They're just not relevant at any time frame people have been pushing. Because for whatever reason, the speed of the rapid rate hiking convinced the economist community that the economy was going to turn down in equal measure very rapidly. And that that logic, um, it's not even good economic logic with, with respect to 25 months of history. It's just, it was plainly wrong. I think a lot of people took the, the leading indicators and they just said, hey, look, the leading indicators are down. And that's always the case. And it always happens. And you know, we've done this with PMIs that have been wrong because purchasing managers are for purchasing managers and leading indicators are not, they're, they're just leading indicators. They're not religion, right? It's not like it's going to happen, right? Right. And this right. is really a problem for people when something is just to start a reference point and that's it. And it's not this, you know, thing that we have to, you know, put put on the books and say it's going to happen and stamp it and say it's going to go. It's going to always happen this way. It's not the case. There was plenty of evidence among the six or seven indicators that are in the NBER definition of a recession or, or expansion. That we're all really positive. The only thing, as you pointed out, is there is a slowdown in manufacturing output, um, but that's fifteen percent of the U.S. economy. And and by the way, that's after a spike in output <laughs> during the COVID pandemic. So it's kind of a rationalization, right? And again, the other problem here is oftentimes when people see any weakness, they don't just say, "Oh, it's rolling over from a high point." To a low point, you know the PMIs are down. Yeah, well they were at sixty for like sixteen months, which is super high. So if you bought a lot of stuff for a while, and then you don't need to buy a lot of stuff, and that's really the answer, right? So we've gotten a lot of people talking their book. We've got a partisan political environment that does not want to give credit to the the, the administration for the economy, um, and then we've got these this these these amateurs in my profession who <laughs> are overselling a story and trying to publish monthly periodicals about recessions that is simply way off base. Yeah. So what do you think about China and what's going on over there being a catalyst? So you you were just talking about manufacturing and uh you know the huge demand we saw during COVID, a lot of it was in China. They had to manufacture the stuff, put it on the boats ship it to us because we wanted the workout weights and the, you know, outdoor furniture or whatever. And now that's gone away over there. They they don't have the demand either anymore. So they're slowed on the manufacturing side. Could China be a catalyst if they were to go into a more severe slowdown, which it's kind of looking like is a possibility, perhaps nobody knows, or is China not even we shouldn't even be discussing. Yeah, I mean, again, what, this is what's called uh, large economies, right? There are large economies and small economies. When you have a large economy and the two largest are China and the U.S., the rest of the world doesn't matter a whole heck of a lot. It's just another one of those things where the waiting is just not enough. 
I mean, you say, okay, yeah, we got a 500 billion trade deficit with China. Okay, well, we have a 27 trillion dollar economy, so that's two and a half percent, or even less, two percent. Two percent is not going to roll over anything, even if it gets a half, a half, you go 50 percent down. Just not going to happen. So again, this is the problem that people are saying. Why I get back to payrolls is my summary statistic, meaning it's summarizing all of the headwinds and the tailwinds. Because there's there's an industry, there is a massive industry to produce documents and research and update people on tall turns. And basically, you need as an investor to learn the summary statistic and do what we do with every single one of these things, which is just recite the data. Just recite all the data and then just say, okay, there's the data. That's reality. That's the signal. That's not the noise. And yeah, there's simply no recession on site, period. And then just stay vigilant. You know, and Get out of this calling turn thing. So the idea that we're saying today there is no recession and no sign of a recession does not mean there will not be one. We just think by by saying now that the recession somewhere possible out two years from now is completely worthless. Right. <laughs> right. right? It's totally worthless. I can sit here and be bearish for two years and then I finally get it right and give you the worst advice for two years but exonerate myself. Right, right. right. So we need to say, look, this is a job for you to do, not for me to do, right? For you to do, get this data, read the data, and learn to say, when the data does what it does, it is what it is. It's not what you want it to be. Don't talk to the data. Don't talk bearishness to the data. Don't talk bullishness to the data. See, at one point, we're going to do one of these shows, and it's going to be one of 25 shows, because there's very few downturns. And one of 25 shows will be, yeah, the non-farm payroll is 50. It got revised down minus 60, and the next month is minus 10. Then we have an issue, right? Yeah, yeah. But, you know, non-farm payrolls that even drift down into the 150s and 120s in the next six months at this point of a recycle of expansion uh, should be expected, and that's not going to be enough to convince me to, to think it's all going over. Again, we get negative prints or zero prints on a revised basis. We have to say, done. We're here, we're in a place, and that's it. But otherwise, we shouldn't. We just simply shouldn't create that fear and speculation. Because, by the way, how many people sold out in October and missed a 25 or 35% run in eight months because of these bears? That was incredibly bad advice. Right? Yeah, I, I saw someone on Twitter, he's in real estate, but he did admit that he sold out, not even in October, he waited until May because we did have the strong rally to open the year, but he sold in May and went away, like the old saying says, and he he has regretted it, he admitted it. He's like, I, I missed out, this is a couple of weeks ago even, he said he missed out on 10%, it's probably even a little bit more now. So yeah, you 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 can't be trying to time it you know, based on people picking like when the recession is going to start. Also, because as we know, stocks, uh, you know, price it in well ahead of time usually, and then are already rallying even while we're still in a recession. So that's a dumb way to pick stocks. Um, but let's talk about stocks for a minute. Uh, last time when you were on, we were in the banking crisis. So we talked a little bit about the banks uh, that you did think – you know, it was okay to buy some of the big banks at that time and all that. Uh, those have mostly rallied and nobody's that concerned about the banks anymore, at least right now. So that's a good sign. But what areas should we be looking in 
for stocks, you know, as we head into the fall, that's always kind of a dreaded period. We've had this massive rally and the S&P 500 I have is trading at 21.4 times forward earnings. So it, what, where should we be now? Yeah, I mean, heat map, Zach's telling you any construction okay. area. I was going to um, ask about that. Yeah, yeah construction, home construction, uh, any commercial construction that is showing a you know strong pulse. Obviously, the office market is dead, but those people who are going to rehab these offices are going to be the business. So even that whole, you know, nobody's in the office thing, that's entirely true. By the way, we have overpriced housing. So the condo conversion crowd in the real estate business is going to lap up all these these groups and put house, you know, downtown LA is empty. Yeah, well, great. How many 50, 60 story houses? That's perfect, right? So this is the problem. It's like a timing thing. If I can get all that those buildings rehabbed and put in balconies and create nicer frameworks and get rid of them, I can create 50, 100,000 units in downtown LA, which will then drive retail, which will not create a, a, a recession. And we'll get rid of a ghost-like environment in Los Angeles. So how long does it take? When does it happen? What are the lags and leagues? You know, how are the staggered contracts with these things? But how long do the banks let this play out? Well, see, this is the problem with, with all these things. you got to go back to the summary indicator because nobody really knows how it plays out in the aggregate because you're always going to not want to see or not weight something properly, right? The basic problem with reading anything is, yeah, you read it. Oh, my God, office things are tanking. Yes, they are. So how much of it is going to happen and when is it going to happen and how many positive things are you ignoring in the face of that, right? That's a very difficult challenge for most people, right? Yeah. So if we wanted to get in the construction side and maybe not even on like the office, the downtown office stuff, which could happen in the next couple of years, um, we do have that large infrastructure bill and they are going to be building, you know, charging stations and all this other stuff along with that, all the bridges and all that. Should it be in like uh, stocks like United Rentals, ticker URI or um, HERC, which is HRI. They also do the the same equipment rentals or like a company like Tech, ticker MTZ. I think they haven't reported earnings yet, but it's coming up soon. Um, I think Tudor, Perini, TPC, I think is that ticker. Those are all like on the actual construction side, either like in some kind of, you know, the equipment or things that are going to be deployed to go out there to build all this stuff. Or should it be uh, like home builders? Those have rallied huge. Some are at all time highs. I, people get a little nervous about buying at all time highs, even if with low valuations or, you know, solid fundamentals. So like DR Horton, DHI. Is the ticker there that's at all-time highs? So what should, or should it be all of these things? These are all cheap, by the way, on a PE basis. These are all cheap. Yeah, I mean, I did some, you know, on YouTube, I did some industrial videos and they have the PowerPoints of the ETFs. So go to the ETFs on the industrial videos. There's eight or 10 of those in there and just cherry pick the top 10 holdings. One we've talked about before is AIRR, which is the Richard Bernstein and American Industrial Renaissance, which is you know some mid-cap holdings, names you don't know about. I you know last time we talked about this, it's up fifteen percent since then. Again, it's not doing Nasdaq stuff, but if you made in eight months fifteen percent, you did well, and you're probably not in an overpriced environment. And the thing's going to keep going; it's very steady. So, 
pick cherry pick major ETFs that have four and five star ratings and just uh, then run them through the exact system and make sure you're getting, you know, earnings surprises pretty serial. You're getting upgrades to annual earnings and just kind of play the game of if it's strong in the fundamentals, then you've got to play that's working in the way you think it should. Um, what was the ticker on that ETF again? I forget. What A-I-R-R. A-I-R-R. Okay. I wanted, I, I was missing an R on there and I was like, that's yeah. not it. Um, yeah, that was a, I remember that from last time when we talked about that, that was a good call. And it does seem like those stocks, you know, do have momentum here. It's not all about tech, obviously. So what about uh, on the flip side of the construction, you're going to need some commodities with that. You're going to need copper, uh, for sure. And, you know, steel and all this other stuff. What about commodities plays? That's always a little trickier, I feel. Yeah, again, I've done some materials videos on YouTube and they have materials ETFs. Uh, the one thing I would tell you about materials ETFs, there's process materials. And then there's all kinds of, you know, the junkyard ETFs or materials that have all kinds of stuff. You have no idea what's in it. The process material things are probably interesting. And uh, I think, you know, particularly battery materials and things that are related to, you know, broad uh, use of things in batteries is going to work. And there's, there's ETFs in there to cherry pick. But again, you're coming to this late in that game and you have to wait on pullbacks for that story. So I, what I generally like is things like, you know, international paper, which is, you know, everybody's giving up on, on the, on the packaged goods because of the goods environment, but that's going to turn around here. You're going to want to buy, buy it when everybody's giving up on them. So there's a lot of packaging, and packaged goods and container goods that I like now, you know, I think that's when you want to buy them now when everybody's decided the manufacturing is going to pieces and we're never going to come back to it. That's perfect. Right. And some of the problems with, I know the packaging companies has been, if we're not ordering all this stuff from Amazon, we don't, you know, they're not packaging. They're not selling as much of the stuff to ship it to us. Is that part of it? That's what I heard. Yeah. And again, sooner or later, this will play out in a different environment a year from now. Market will look ahead before you do. And and people will start ordering online again and you'll, you'll have missed the current because the market will pick it up for you. You know, anything you're reading about is is already been priced in. Anything you're not reading about is is may or may not be priced in. Right. And generally speaking, you get, you get a decent momentum trend in any of these super beaten down areas of materials. Uh, just buy the market's trend that out of the bottom here, you know, and just say, yeah, international paper's finally going up. Good. I'm in, you know, take the dividend for a while. They generally pay because they have good cash flows. They get dividends and you just say, yeah, great. You know, I'll wait, you know? Yeah. I was just looking at the international paper dividend and it's 5.2%. Yeah. Wow. So tell me <laughs> I'm wrong about international paper. I'll tell you, great. I'll just sit it out. I'll earn a 5% dividend until I'm right. I love things like that, right? I mean, just tell me I'm stupid and I'll just pick up five percent. I, you know, I personally bought some Whirlpool like a six months ago that had five and a half percent dividend. You know, yeah, I get that nobody's going to put in appliances they already have, but they will right. eventually. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, you, you say when is when is a major appliance dealer going to rise again? Whenever the replacement cycle wears itself out. <laughs> right, 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 right. right? I don't need to be a genius about this stuff. I just got to wait it out. And by the way, I get quick 5% dividend. That's really good. So I just sit you know, in an income portfolio, 401k, you just sit on that thing. Yeah. You know, there's dumber ideas in that one. Um, yeah, you're right. 4.9% it's now yielding. Yeah. Whirlpool pays 4.9% right now. So you say, 
you know, I got it at five and a half. So this rally fixed. I've got 16% return in six months because I was right. And then I also got this dividend until it roll over again. It'll die again for a little bit and I'll be fine. <laughs> right. 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 So do you feel the same way about like RVs, like Winnebago and Thor Industries? Because those were in a huge cycle too during the pandemic. Everybody rushed out to buy the Airstreams. Now they're not. So the stocks have, you know, uh, come down, up a bit. Some of them pay dividends too, but not quite as good. I'm looking at Winnebago. It's about 1.6% yield. But is that like a similar thing? I mean, we, they will you know, buyers will go back in there to get RVs. Yeah, I'm a little bit more concerned about that because, you know, that was um, people are going to change and cycle out of, it. you know, faddish stuff like RVs at this point. Um, I would say this, though, I wouldn't say it's weak because, you know, housing or, or I, whenever I look at hotel prices, they're outstandingly high. Yeah. And if you have a family, I mean, I think the real RV pitch is, you know, if I have a family, I could put, the food in the thing, pay 80 bucks a night in a KOA, um, and I could take my family to national parks for 10 years and stay out of pan for two hotel rooms that are 300 bucks a night apiece. Right. right. The economics are so favorable for people who want to do some traveling with, with, with families of more than you know two or three kids, or they team up with a couple families. I see that a lot in California or the surfing crowd that, that puts their equipment together and they, they kind of get little meetups. Uh, so I think a real issue here is, you know, the, the greed out of the, you know, the Marriott crowd is going to keep the Thor and Winnebago uh, sales up because people are going to go, Hey, you know, I'm on a death Valley for 450 bucks a night, or I can go park in Palm Springs and drive over there and check it all out anyways at a hundred bucks a night. So what am I going to do? Right. Won't the uh, affordable housing issue also uh, kind of lend itself to the big, the big RVs, not the airstreams necessarily, but the huge, expensive ones? Because a lot of retirees have been swapping out the house for the RV and the open road. That could be a big thing too, as long as affordability remains, you know, bad. Yeah, these are where the, where people you can see the affordability thing. I just say, hey, you know, I'll hit the road. In my RV, I'll, have, I'll buy a half an acre of land in Wyoming and I'll park it there and go fishing. Yeah. You know, I'll get some, you know, and I just say, why, why do I want to bother with it? I'll go down to the Baja, you know, I'll make it happen. I got, you know, I'd be more creative. Like think about, I mean, this is, I think we got to realize like, you know, we're giving it in with, you know, high speed internet connections and remote working like you and I are doing now. Um, you know, you start saying to yourself, oh, well, you know, I can do this. I can do that. More and more people are realizing that, which then generates more ability to do that with your employer, with yourself, with your spouse, with your community. And people are, are saying, hey, you know, anything that gives me more mobility with with strong Internet and voice and video connections to my children, to my grandchildren, to my community. Yeah, I'm doing I'm done. So, yeah, I think, you know, the evolution of these things is continuing. and. Uh, it's very hard to say, hey, it's going to blow up, right? It's going to end. They're all going to park their RVs now. Really? Because then what are you going to do? Go to Marriott for 350 bucks a night and hang out? No. They're going to get bored. They're going to say, no, I'm, I don't want to be bored. I'm, I, I'll keep it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. All right. There's some good ideas, some good stock ideas as we head into the fall. And we'll see what happens with this rally. 
we will get a pullback at some point. We always do yeah, we and be some buying opportunities then. Uh, even in these kind of dirt cheap stocks, you'll be able to get them in even cheaper. Um, the the uh, Whirlpool is trading at eight times forward right now, too, with that dividend. So that's yeah. a real cheap stock. Really cheap stock. I mean, anything we got to tell people, yes, there this call for a recession that we do not see does not at all mean we're not bearish and see a 10% correction at these valuations. Right. right. Totally wrong. I, I could totally... And I'm sure you're with me. 10% correction here, not a problem at all after this big rally. Multi-week rally, haven't seen in three decades. Good luck. It's going to roll over and blow up. You get a 10, even 15% correction. Right. And so, right. you know, that's not a recession. It meant uh, a moment. It'll create recession articles. It'll get the shorts on the side of the market to, to write the recession articles. Then we'll have the election come. So then we'll get the right wing pushing, you know, that Biden's blowing up the economy articles. And in half the world will read those things, right? Because that's just what they want to read. So we're going to get them as soon as the stock rolls. We're going to get them, right? And they're not going to be any more accurate than before. Because again, it's at the end of the day, it's the non-farm payrolls, it's the initial claims on a weekly basis. If you want to be a little forward-looking, and it's just saying, hey, that's what it is. Till incomes and jobs dry up, there is no cycle to be worried about. Okay. We'll leave it there for uh, this podcast, but of course, we'll have John back on later on in the year, as we always do, and we'll cover all this again and see what's going on in a couple of months as we head towards the end of the year already. Wow, time is flying. So let me recap the stocks we talked about on this show. Um, let's start with the ETF that John mentioned that... It, has all the industrials in it. It's AIRR is the ticker for that. I mentioned United Rentals, it's ticker URI, and then the smaller competitor is HRI. Then Mastech, they're also on construction, MTZ. M is in Mary, T is in Tom, Z is in Zoo. And then Tudor Perini, also construction, TPC. Then I just mentioned DR Horton is one of the home builders breaking out. DHI is the ticker. We talked about international paper with that good dividend, 5.2%. And it's IP, just two letters, IP as in Paul. And then we mentioned Winnebago on the RV side. It's WGO and Whirlpool is what we kind of wrapped up with, with WHR is the ticker there with the 4.9% yield. So that's a lot going on. And we didn't mention any of the Magnificent Seven really in this podcast, nor did we talk about the banks at all really. So that's progress. There's other things going on in the economy and investing out there. So you don't want to miss a single episode of the Zach's Market Edge uh, either on video or on audio. You can get us on Apple Podcasts. You can get us on Spotify. We're on Zax.com. Click on the podcast link. You can also get us on YouTube now on the video format on our page, which is Zax.com slash YouTube. If you're not already over on YouTube, you can get it. And Zach's Investment Research, just type that in and you'll see us. But be sure to get us somewhere. And I'll see you again next week with some more stocks. 
This material is being provided for informational purposes only, and nothing herein constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a recommendation to buy, sell, or hold a security. Do not act or rely upon the information and advice given in this podcast without seeking the services of competent and professional legal, tax, or accounting counsel. Publication and distribution of this podcast is not intended to create, and the information contained herein does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. No recommendation or advice is being given as to whether any investment or strategy is suitable for a particular investor. It should not be assumed that any investments in securities, companies, sectors, or markets identified and described were or will be profitable. All information is current as of the date herein and is subject to change without notice. Any views or opinions expressed may not reflect those of Zach's Investment Research as a whole.